Council zones are confusing. If you're looking to build, extend, subdivide or develop, there's a lot you need to know about deciphering where and what you can build to change the streetscape. Today, we have Frank Perry from townplanning.com.au to help us get it right. Welcome to Real Estate Right, where we talk to top experts on how to buy, sell, rent and invest right. Your hosts are Grant Kennedy and Sue Langida. Real Estate Right would love to thank our listeners for being part of our journey. We'd really love it if all those who are out there in podcast land could rate, review and subscribe to Real Estate Right on your favourite podcast platform. Chat to us on our Facebook and Instagram accounts or tell the world why you love Real Estate Right. It's not only for buyers, sellers, investors and tenants, it's even great for real estate agents to scrub up on their knowledge, especially an episode like this. Now, back to the show. Frank Perry is a senior member of the planning profession in Victoria and has wide experience in both the private and public sectors, having worked at senior levels in state and local government. The breadth of his experience encompasses the full range of statutory planning approvals, ranging from medium-density housing assignments to high-rise apartment developments, shopping centres and large estate planning and subdivisions. Frank Perry is also experienced in securing changes to planning controls to enable new development in areas where development was previously prohibited. Welcome, Frank. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> Thanks for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. How did you get into pl- uh, town planning? <clears throat> well, I studied economics at university and uh, after I qualified, I joined the Commonwealth Public Service and I was posted to Canberra. And um, what struck me when I first arrived in Canberra was it's not like any other city that I've ever seen because it, yes. w- it looked like it had been planned on a desktop. Yes, it is very interesting, isn't it, how Canberra is created? What had happened was that, that uh, there was a, a development corporation set up. It was called the National Capital Development Corporation. And um, they had planned the whole of the city and the city was growing just according to how the National Capital Development Commission uh, planned it. And I thought that's pretty interesting because I was quite interested in environmental matters and um, just general residential amenity issues and things like that. And I eventually uh, joined the National Capital Development Commission and I realised there were such things as town planners. So can you explain to us the planning system and how it affects every property in the state? Sure. Every every property in Victoria is controlled by a planning scheme. So it's uh, <clears throat> uh, it, planning schemes are comprised of maps and ordinances, which is the written documentation that goes with those maps. And mm-hmm. um, if you look at a municipality, um, any particular municipality, it uh, has a number of zones in there. There'll be zones for residential development, for industrial land use, uh, for shopping centres, for high density development, for low density development, for open space, or for um, uh, more rural type uses that are uh, appropriate in that particular municipality. So the the, um, framework for all of those zones is statewide, but there are local variations in various ways. 
Yeah. Uh, well, if someone asks me what can I do on this uh, piece of land, I have to explain to them that that's not an easy question to answer. Yes. <laughs> you have to you have to look at a number of things, and uh, one of them is the way in which councils exercise their discretion in this particular area. Mm. So you need to sort of burrow down a deeper. Yes, oh, definitely. But I always put subject to council approval because that's what you have to do. Mm. Uh, however, like I did a property last week, which was eight units, absolute beachfront in Edith Vale. Um, mm. The units were completely falling apart, essentially. Um, but they were mm. turning over $136,000 a year in, in income. So it was a great opportunity for somebody to land bank, knowing that they can put eight properties on that parcel of land still. I think it was about 1,200 square metres of land. Um, but having the absolute beachfront, having your own beach access, all that sort of stuff would also appeal to somebody who wants to do a beautiful estate or a nice little, um, you know, townhouse development, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... And- yeah, you, you checked the zone, did you? Check the zone, yeah. The it was one. actually in, um, a neighbourhood residential zone. So yeah. in our um, one, yeah. So, but because it was already eight units, you can essentially... But there were eight that, units there at the time? Yeah, eight units are currently there at the moment. Were they subdivided? No, no, it was one land. It was one owner owning the whole thing. Okay. Yep. So you should be able to... One, put another eight units on if you want to, but make them, you know, brand new. Mm-hmm. Two, put a beautiful family home on there with the beachfront or mm-hmm. make it even a smaller version, like yeah. a, um, like say, four luxury townhouses rather than eight mm-hmm. apartments. Okay. Um, you, could, yeah, you could do a variety of things, but you couldn't go three stories, four stories. You couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so what's the difference between a zone and an overlay? Well, a zone um, is controls land use. That's the way in which uh, land is occupied. I mean, you could have in a shopping center, you could have um, a shop or Mm -hmm. you could have an office occupying, occupying exactly the same space, but the controls affecting uh, a shop and an office are quite different. Okay. So that, that explains it. Whereas, um, well, the other question was overlays, was it? Overlay. What's an overlay? Yeah. yeah. An overlay is something that um, controls development. It might might say, okay, you can have a shop in this location, but um, there are, it, it has to be constructed in a particular way. It has to have setbacks of a particular type or uh, height controls or other yeah. physical constraints on the development of that site. So zones control use, whereas overlays control development. Okay. So for instance, uh, an overlay may be a single dwelling covenant. Covenant and overlay are very similar or not? No, no. Uh, uh, I think you have to separate the planning system from the legal system. Okay. And um, uh, covenants come with the title of the land and they're a different type of constraint. Um, okay. I think uh, perhaps we get a little bit further down the track, I'll explain how how um, covenants and other controls on the title work. Okay, that's cool. We can do that. Um, but yeah, okay, so zone and zones and overlays are under the planning scheme. However, yes. yeah, 
other things can do. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, perhaps, perhaps if we're on that, on that, I'll just say something yeah. because often, um, let's say you're, you're developing um, a block of units, uh, yes. or, let's say in a, a residential growth zone, um, mm-hmm. you've got the controls that are afforded by the planning scheme, that is the number of units, the height, setbacks and all the rest of it and the amount of car parking. But the council may have other requirements um, that they insist uh, goes onto the title and that might be um, that you can't sort of uh, apply to do further extensions in the future um, that, mm-hmm. that, uh, and that would be a, a restriction on the title of the land uh, which stays in perpetuity and is yeah. not subject to discretion. So there are, okay. and you might have another situation where you've got a subdivision uh, and there's a covenant put on the titles of each of the lots that um, you can only have one dwelling on that allotment. So, okay. and that, that's a legal constraint rather than a planning constraint. Planning constraint. Okay. So things like uh, a heritage overlay or a, uh, even trees that may not be allowed to be uh, taken down because mm-hmm. they've got significant um, value to the land, they're considered overlays or covenants? Yeah, that's an overlay, yes. They're overlays. Um, uh, it might be yeah. a vegetation protection overlay. That's the one I'm uh, trying to think. Yeah. yeah, so <laughs> there are all sorts of overlays. There's uh, numerous ones, but uh, there might yeah. be historical uh, heritage overlays, um, might be land subject to inundation overlays or it might be vegetation protection overlays uh, and a variety of others as well. Yeah. And so and covenants can be put on by, for instance... Covenants, covenants are put on at the time when um, uh, subdivision is created. You know, okay. Some people might say, well, look, uh, we want to subdivide this land into 10 individual allotments uh, yeah. But we don't want. We only want uh, one dwelling per allotment, and yeah. um, each of the people in that subdivision are beneficiaries of that covenant, and they can block a change, any change that's sought to that covenant. Okay. So, it's a, so it's the covenant public... is basically putting a stop to things like if you want to add an extra story or as just an extension. Well, well, it may not stop stop that. It might stop certain things, or it might say. Um, Construction can only be brick and masonry, uh, okay. you know, not timber or other other sort of constraints like that. Um, yeah. I think uh, usually that, or they might might say that all development in this estate has got to be single story and um, has to have uh, post boxes in a particular location and yeah. um, there has to be certain features of any building on the site. There could be things like that in the covenant. Um, okay. Uh, but... Um, that is in addition to the planning controls. And I think my view is that it's a bit dangerous to put covenants on titles uh, because mm-hmm. circumstances change, but uh, the covenant stays on there depend- yeah. and they're very hard to remove. Yes, I believe so. Through my job, I've come across things like single dwelling covenants because the land is um, the, the original estate of the, the property, for instance, like the Doville estate in Beaumaris, mm-hmm. um, uh, only single dwellings can be on those on those particular uh, land allotments. So that would have been done, as you said, in the subdivision of the original thing. I think the yeah. Gascoigne estate in East Melbourne is very similar. 
mm-hmm. um, where they have single dwelling covenants. Mm-hmm. Um, but even like Green Wedge places, they also have one residence. They're not going to have two or three. Well, that's some... a planning control. It's not a yeah. covenant. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But uh, I've just uh, I have uh, been involved in removal of covenants. Um, yeah. But they're quite difficult because, um, you, first of all, you have to work out who the beneficiaries are mm. and um, any of the beneficiaries can block the covenant. And I think uh, in order to overcome any opposition from one of the beneficiaries, it's yeah. a matter of going to the Supreme Court and it can be quite an expensive oh, wow. exercise. Yeah, so yeah. I was just going to say some covenants sort of expire you know, because of mm. what's happened in the past. Uh, I remember I had one in Turak where um, there was a very restrictive covenant on it, but over the years, over the previous hundred years, um, different things had happened there which were in breach of the covenant and it was deemed to have expired just because of the flux of time and and, um, uh, occurrences that had occurred over over the period. Yeah. So they can expire, but uh, generally speaking, they're permanent and they remain on the title. When it, so if we're going to go back to that example of the Doval estate, mm-hmm. if, say, one house wanted to go ahead with subdividing, then all parties of that Doval estate would have to say, yes, that's okay. For uh, well, that depends. If, it was, uh, if the covenant said that uh, there can be no further subdivision, that yeah. would be the case. Yeah. Um, if, it, if it didn't say that... Uh, there would be an opportunity for the other parties in the subdivision to object to a proposal to subdivide. Yeah. But um, that would be something that could go through. Um, there's an appeal op- opportunity and you, know, you can yeah. actually judge that on the merits of the case. Yeah, fair enough. All good. So where can we find out what zone our property or the property we are looking to buy in is actually in? <clears throat> okay. How do we find uh, that out? Uh, that's that's a good question, and um, I uh, you can you can actually find out by going to government websites, and yes. if you can work your way through the system, um, mm-hmm. there's a uh, you can Google Planning Victoria and mm-hmm. work your way through the system there, put in an address and find out what the zoning is. Um, yeah. I've I've actually set up uh, my own uh, website. It's yeah. called townplanning.com.au. Yeah. So you, if you go into that website, just put in the address, and it'll it'll spill out a um, a report on the on that on the particular property. property, which will tell you the zones, the overlays, and other issues that are affecting the um, property. And yeah. I, I use it myself because I have a lot of these inquiries anyway. So yes, <laughs> I might as well use my own website because I think it. I designed it in such a way that you only have to ask a couple of questions or put yeah. in a couple of entries. Whereas if you go through the government website that's mixed up with a whole lot of other issues and it's yeah. a bit hard to um, find your way through that yeah. process. Yeah. I was going to say that I've actually um, gone through your website to have a look to see how it is and it is actually quite easy to use and it does give you mm. a lot of information that you need. So, yeah, I do recommend townplanning.com.au. There's also, also the opportunity to uh, secure a copy of title, which yeah. is in, pretty important because I think... Um, while you're looking at the zoning, you need to know whether any constraints on the land as well. Yeah. Uh, so purchasing a title, a copy of title, is not expensive, mm. but I think it's hugely valuable. Oh, definitely. In the process. Yeah. yeah. 
and it gives you lots of information, lots of, about mm. the history of the people who lived there and all that fun stuff. That sort of thing, yeah. 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 All good. So I've got a listener question here. Peter from Hopper's Crossing is wanting to buy a property for his first development. He wants to know what are the best residential zones for him to be looking for. Uh, okay. Uh, I saw that question and I yeah. think um, <laughs> um, I think uh, Peter should be looking at a, a uh, if he wants to do a comprehensive development, um, yeah. he should be looking at a residential growth zone or yes. a mixed use zone. I think yeah. they're the best ones. Uh, because they have far less constraints in terms of height, uh, height controls and, and other controls with regard to development. Yes. The, there are two um, other zones that are more common. The general residential zone is the most common zone, mm-hmm. but that has a, a fairly stringent set of requirements in terms of um, uh, garden areas. Um, mm-hmm. And um, if you look at a garden area, uh, if you've got to have a certain percentage of the site devoted to garden area um, and it's quite restrictive, it really limits what you can actually do in that yeah. particular zone because there are also height controls. And yeah. um, so if you put it all together, can be um, it doesn't give you a, a wide range of options in that mm. particular case. Can I just ask, can a garden area be like a rooftop or a balcony or does it have to be on the ground? Uh, it's set out in the um, in the planning scheme what it what yes. it can do. Um, I'll just see if I can I can find the uh, reference for you. But um, what what actually garden area is? <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, anyway, go go on with the next question while I'm having a look for this. Okay. Uh, now, conversely, if a home buyer is looking to make sure they don't get lost in a sea of overdevelopment, what zones mm-hmm. should we be looking to buy in? Uh, I think the neighbourhood residential zone is probably the best, uh, yes. but I think the general residential zone provides pretty good, pretty good uh, safeguards as well, mm-hmm. because um, uh, with uh, there are height controls in both of those zones, and there are also um, set setbacks from boundaries, etc. And I think that um, in, in both of those zones, you'd be pretty comfortable with anything that happens, like in your yes. street or adjacent to you. Uh, yeah. There might still be circumstances where you feel that you're um, you're affected by the particular development just because of building bulk or overshadowing or something like that or overlooking, yeah. but um, you're pretty you're pretty safe in terms of um, the scale of development that's possible. You're not going to get a, a seven-story block of flats next to you yes. uh, in either of those zones. So I think okay. that's probably if you're looking at the security and you know for the future and uh, amenity, I think they're the zones that I'd be looking at. Yeah, definitely. Oh, good. So we touched on this a little bit, but what happens if our property is zoned green wedge, which usually means owning a substantial amount of land? What can we yes. do with a green wedge property? Uh, a green wedge property, well, um, there are variations uh, as uh, what happens in <clears throat> a lot of the Melbourne was created with. Um, on the basis that it would have a series of corridors extending out from the central city. Yes. Uh, and in between those corridors, there would be green wedges. And mm-hmm. um, so the green wedge zone was introduced for that purpose. Yeah. Uh, but there are, in, in each municipality, there are variations in um, the controls over the green wedge in terms of 
minimum lot size and uh, subdivision uh, uh, capability. Yeah. But there are also a number of uses that can go into green ledges, um, but they are fairly low intensity uses. So uh, I think um, if you've got land in a green wedge, you've got to face the fact that you've got fairly significant constraints on future development. But yeah. that's not to say there aren't things that you can do. I mean, we recently got a um, permit for a market in a green wedge zone in Point okay. Cook. Yeah. And, um, that was because of um, uh, that that facility was available under the planning scheme, but there are very few of those examples there. But there are some things that you can do, particularly development like uh, in association with agricultural uses, um, mm. like you can have a winery associated with a with you know a winery reception area yeah. associated with. Uh, an actual winery. <laughs> I mean, that's, yes. that's the type of thing that can happen. Yeah. I, I saw one yesterday where um, it was a two and a half acres sort of around the corner from where I am. And it had uh, the residence plus a self-contained apartment off the residence. But then it also had a, it was a strawberry farm selling little shop and had a couple of cool rooms next to it. So they were selling the whole thing. Um, but yeah, they had the long driveway and the car parking next to the shop. So if people wanted to buy some strawberries, they could buy strawberries from the shop. So they could have yes. it as a commercial as well as residential. Yes. If, yeah. So yeah. But if you want that um, semi-rural lifestyle, that's the kind of thing you can go for. That's just, for sure. Uh, well, I've yeah? just looked up this uh, definition of garden area. I'll just read yes. it to you if you like. Um, it's an uncovered outdoor area normally associated with a garden. Okay. Okay. It includes open entertainment, entertaining areas, decks, lawns, garden beds, swimming pools, tennis courts, and the like. It doesn't include a driveway or any area set aside for car parking, any building or roofed area, and any area that has a dimension of less than one meter. So uh, that's how you work out. A, Okay. <laughs> that, that's so a bit that, of a problem for architects to work all of it out, but um, yeah, that's, they're the rules. Yeah. So it doesn't include roofed areas, so that means not rooftop terraces. But that uh, that's fair? well, if the terrace is open to the air, uh, it doesn't yeah. include it. I mean, I think that's a little bit, um, little bit vague, you know, because it is supposedly, vague. supposedly, if you had a some sort of covering, um, mm. an open area, but you've got a some sort of um, with that covering, um, yeah. that's not included. But I think that uh, there's a little bit of leeway with those sort of controls. Yeah. But generally speaking, it's pretty tight. You know, like if, if you've got um, if you've got a uh, property that's over 600 square meters, um, yeah. 35% of that that has to be um, garden area, and mm. that's a pretty tough control. Tough control. So, just off topic a little, or not off topic, but off the, the questions, I know most council areas have a variety of what can be subdivided into two properties. Um, so what size land? So obviously in, in the city of Yarra, it's going to be tighter being you know, Richmond and Abbotsford and all lots of stuff because the, the land is much smaller. And you do hear of um, houses being subdivided into like 100 square metre lots or even less. Whereas mm-hmm. um, suburb areas like Glenara 
or um, Bayside or or Kingston, it's generally 300 square metres per development like lot. Uh, so you need 600 square metres divided by two, you get 300 each. I think Bayside at one stage we're talking about 400 square metres as a minimum mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. per unit site. Uh, but I think that depends on, again, the zoning. So what... What think, is uh, what, what's, the average? Well, I think what's superseded that is the mm. uh, the garden area, like in Bayside, the garden yeah. area requirements really limit okay. you because um, uh, I don't think there's a minimum uh, lot size for, I mean, you can get a permit to subdivide into smaller areas, but mm. you're still constrained by that garden area requirement and that's garden okay. area at the ground level, yeah? At the ground level, yeah, yeah. okay. Because I know sometimes corner blocks can be a bit, well, if you subdivide a corner block, you've got driveways coming from either corner and so this, the, the garden area ends up being a bit more. So they, like if it's a thing, if they used to be the requirement of 600 square metres, they could get it down to like 570 because they can use the corner block, block a bit more efficiently or something. Yeah, like. I don't think there's a restriction on uh, the lot size in terms yeah, of... Yeah, as you said, uh, it's a garden. It's really just the all the other controls that really uh, determine yeah. what you can do. Yeah. yeah. And as, as you point out, um, the benefit of a corner block is that you can, you can actually um, eliminate the need for common property. You can actually... If you've got two mm. driveways that are wholly owned by the... or wholly on the um, separate titles. Yeah. Uh, don't have the problem of common property, whereas if you've got one one behind the other, um, obviously the driveway is used by both of the properties, and uh, then you've got a problem with common property and maintenance and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So it doesn't, and it also chews up a lot of the um, the garden, the garden area, area too. So, yeah, because yeah. not it doesn't include driveways, yeah. which is something I didn't realise. So there, mm. it's all good. So. We will have a short break and come back with more from Frank Perry from townplanning.com.au. We are back to talk more about council zones with Frank Perry from townplanning.com.au and how we can better understand properties and all the council zones before we purchase. Welcome back, Frank. Oh, thank you. Explain to us how the decisions are made when applying for a planning approval. Yes. Well, most uh, planning approvals are conducted by municipal councils because they're the ones that have the planning powers in most cases, although there are exceptions where the Minister for Planning may have control. Um, But in most cases, the the decisions on planning applications are made by uh, the local council. So the process is that um, uh, each council has its own requirements in terms of uh, what should be included in a planning application. There are also guides provided at the state level uh, to assist people making applications for a planning permit, which set out the requirements. But usually what, uh, let's presume you're going to do, let's say dual occupancy or um, a group of um, units, uh, you need to actually uh, have a planning report which explains how the proposed development um, complies with all of the provisions of the planning scheme, including the zones and the overlays and the schedules to both the zones and the overlays. Uh, yeah. You'd also need um, 
plans which show how the layout's going to be uh, achieved. And uh, yes. it would have to be fully dimensioned to show setbacks and all of the physical features of the proposed development. It may be a situation where um, sometimes you have uh, car parking is a bit tight on some sites, so you might need to get a, um, a statement from a traffic engineer that uh, indicates how beagles can enter and leave the site in a in a orderly orderly manner, and there's provision yes. for turning circles, etc. So often we get a um, we get a traffic statement uh, that goes with it. Uh, and also, there is bearing in mind there is a, a, a requirement in the planning scheme for car parking, uh, so you have to yes. meet those requirements as well. Um, and uh, often there's an issue with regard to removal of vegetation or, or uh, landscaping, so it, it yes. may be necessary to have an arborist report if you're moving, removing removing um, native vegetation and a landscape yes. plan to go with it. Uh, usually that's sufficient, but sometimes there are other requirements as well in terms of um, uh, complying with uh, uh, acoustic issues or um, other issues mm -hmm. that may be localised. So you really need to analyse the, um, the circumstances of a particular site and the type of development you're proposing, and that will give you a guide as to which sort of documentation you need. So you lodge that with the council. The council will yes. then review it, and if they've got any further or seek any further information, they'll have to respond within, I think it's 21 or 31 days or something. Uh, I think it's 30 days. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, if they, you get a request for further information, you have a certain timeline to respond to that. Uh, and if the council's mm -hmm. then satisfied, uh, they will direct, usually direct advertising of the proposal, and that's usually with a a sign on the site and perhaps uh, notification in writing to adjoining property owners. Uh, often yes. councils these days also post applications on their website. So if anyone's interested, they can go onto the website and have a look at the detail of the proposal together with all of the supporting information. So that's a fairly efficient yeah. way to get the message across. Uh, the, yeah. After advertising, if, if people, uh, if anyone uh, objects uh, that'll have to be considered by the council and the council will then make a decision whether and they can make a decision either to um, uh, to grant a permit or to refuse it or to uh, grant a permit with conditions that actually vary that what's being proposed um, yeah. objectors have the opportunity to appeal to vcat if they're if they're not happy with the council's decision as has mm -hmm. the uh, applicant. The applicant can also appeal to VCAT if they're not happy with yes. the way the council's um, handled the matter. Um, so, yeah. But if all of that's resolved, well, the council can um, issue a permit. Um, most applications, mm -hmm. if they're well constructed, will go through to grant of a permit without it going to the VCAT. Yeah. But there are a number of cases that do go to VCAT and. Um, they can be either objectors appealing or the applicant appealing uh, against yeah. a refusal or conditions in the permit. Um, yeah. And VCAT makes a decision and then that's final. Yeah. It's a very lengthy process, process it isn't it? It gets more complicated each year. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it does. Mm. I find that most yeah. decisions by councils are um, supported by VCAT, despite a common yeah. perception. 
I think you've probably gone into a little bit of this, but what rights do developers have to appeal against decisions by the council? Like, obviously, they can go into VCAT, um, but how far can they take that? Well, um, yes, I mean, if uh, a developer is not happy with the council's decision, and might that might be either because it's been refused or because mm-hmm. um, the conditions imposed on the approval are so stringent that... Um, they're considered to be um, over and above what would be legitimate in a particular case. And mm-hmm. um, the, uh, so then it would be um, an appeal by the developer to VCAT and uh, the council mm-hmm. would have to be represented there and uh, any other parties that, are, that wanted to join in the application. Uh, there would be yeah. a formal hearing at VCAT and a decision would be made on the on the merits of the case, and once the decision is made on the merits, uh, that's it. The council's directed to act on the basis of the decision of the VCAT. So um, okay. that's the process. And um, VCAT VCAT is it's not it's not overly legalistic, but it is, does follow a procedure and usually the presentation is made firstly by the council to indicate why they've made the decision in a particular way then any Mm -hmm. objectors to the development would have the uh, opportunity to express their views and then finally Mm -hmm. the uh, the developer or the applicant the permit applicant would put their case and sometimes um, in putting a case like that um, people are represented by uh, planners or by solicitors or barristers and occasionally Mm -hmm. there's uh, evidence called independent evidence um, to support a particular point of view. So that's yeah. that's how it works. And um, the, it works, yeah. these uh, appeals that can go for half a day, one day, or three weeks uh, depends on the yeah. circumstances. It's pretty heavy duty. So you've got to have a good team on your side, don't you? I think any developer has to factor in the <laughs> the possibility of yeah. uh, delays and. Um, Yes. In the event of um, objections and VCAT hearings, you know, a certain budget for those types of eventualities. Yeah, definitely. Can municipal councils and shires change the zones or is it a state government authority? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, it's actually the Minister for Planning who actually uh, makes decisions on zoning changes. Uh, yeah. But he's informed by... Um, the council and also uh, his own department and possibly if it goes to a, an independent panel, um, the views of the independent panel. So if I just take you through the phase, firstly, if you wanted to rezone land, you'd firstly have to convince the council to uh, seek an amendment uh, or seek leave to exhibit an amendment to the scheme, the planning scheme mm-hmm. from the Minister for Planning. And that's like a big deal. So uh, yeah. you actually have to convince the council first um, yeah. and then uh, the council will have to convince the minister um, and then it comes back to the council and then the council directs advertising of the proposal. Um, yes. It's uh, public have the opportunity to submit their, their views on the uh, planning scheme amendment. Um, council will decide to either um, whether they need to actually refer it to an independent panel. Uh, if they do, uh, they'll ask the minister to appoint an independent panel 
uh, to mm. consider all of the submissions. The panel doesn't have the power to make a decision, but they have uh, they their report is usually carrying a lot of weight when it's sent back to the council. The council yeah. then uh, would resolve to um, support the amendment or to vary it and then send all of the documents off to the minister who would then uh, have the opportunity to um, make it would make a decision on a particular uh, rezoning proposal. So it's it's a difficult procedure and one that yes. has to be carefully uh, modulated to make sure that it's not a not a waste of time and money because it can be mm. can extend over a long period of time. I mean, I, I had a, a big rezoning in Coosborough in the city of Greater mm. Dandenong and yeah. from start to finish that took about eight years to complete. Wow. So, um, uh, and But it was a big rezoning so it was... Um, yeah, it was so is that that pocket near like, Perry, is it Perry Road where they've got the... Um, there's the new Woolies there, a little shopping centre, and then they've That's got right. lots of yeah. little residential pockets yeah. through there. So, our our yeah. company rezoned that whole area, yeah. Okay, mm. yeah. So eight years it took that yes. to happen. And there was also wow. the shopping centre itself was a separate planning scheme amendment, so we, we handled oh, that it as well. Been. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems to work around there now. Like it's quite... Well, um, I think that's uh, probably one of the um, one of the best um, residential areas in Greater Dandenong, I think uh, it's all yeah. been pretty well settled and um, prices are pretty good. Um, yeah, and, and they've got like lovely the lakes area. there. Yeah. They've got the, you know, the lakes there. That's close to Halebury if you want to go to the private yeah. schools. That's right. Um, yeah, and they've also got a primary school about to go in there, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> we organised that one as well. <laughs> we organised that one as well. Mm. <laughs> well, it's good because, you know, the area needs it, I think, mm. yeah, just to get out of that sort of market no, that's, garden. That's a very attractive area, actually. I like a lot yeah. of these, but yeah. Yeah, it's good. Now, you said in your introduction that you were, have been able to change planning controls to enable new development where it was previously prohibited. Mm-hmm. How was that able to be achieved? Is well, that, that what we've sort of talked that's about? That's what we're just bit? talking about because yeah. uh, with uh, that proposal in Keysborough, there were something like mm. 35 different landowners and um, yeah. we had to form a um, like a, an unincorporated association of landowners to actually mm-hmm. um, support that amendment. And um, mm-hmm. in doing so, we had to design um, uh, open space. Uh, we had to look at uh, controls where new roads would go in, where the, mm-hmm. what would be an appropriate location for a school and a shopping centre. And um, that all had to, that, that process took a long time, but it was very beneficial for the landowners involved because it... Um, certainly dramatically increased the value of their properties, but also provided an opportunity for um, new residents to find um, uh, housing in a location that's well serviced by urban infrastructure. And yes. it was very positive uh, outcome for Greater Dandenong too. So yeah. it was quite difficult, yeah, but was a, it was a very, uh, I think, a very positive outcome. Yes. Well, you see, like, urban growth, the growth corridor is just expanding and expanding, and this little pocket was one that was already in the sort of, what was it, 30 k's out of the city? It's not as far as some of the 50 or 60 no. or 70 k's. No, probably so, uh, if everything goes well. I mean, if the Monash Freeway was open, uh, uh, yeah. um, it would be about 20, 
20 to 25 minutes into the city. So it's pretty, it's yeah. a good connection. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We are sprawling further out, aren't we? Mm, that's as a, right. As a town. I think we need to make better use of the land that's already zoned. Yeah. And um, that was a good example, you know, because it was, yes. it wasn't a green wedge zone. It was in a farming zone and it was one that was ready to be converted for residential yes. purposes, but it had to be properly planned. So. Mm. Because there's other pockets like Heatherton. That's that's a market garden kind of little pocket through there. Um, yeah, even, yeah, is that that's an that's an interesting that area because that that area in Heatherton uh, was used for soil extraction, I think, over a period of time, and um, and market gardens, and mm. it was part of uh, part of the green wedge. But I think um, mm. the city of Kingston's re-looking at that I mean just could some of those areas be converted to um, yeah. urban developments um, without destroying the whole uh, option of maintaining these green wedges because it, yes. they're fairly isolated pockets that aren't aren't necessarily um, useful in terms of open space or anything and would yeah. certainly integrate well into the urban fabric so yeah. I think uh, that's an area that's worthwhile looking at yeah yeah, because I suppose my main concern with some of those places are um, the soil. Uh, one, they're obviously going to be quite rich in, in soil for market gardening, but mm. also are they also tending to like flood a little bit or, or and these are the sort of concerns that council would have, wouldn't they? Like would mm. it be worth putting an urban area in or suburban area into an area that's sort of prone for flooding or prone to oh, all um, of those things that have to be clarified so the, 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 the council tip smelling of you know wafting in a certain direction yes, yes. yeah there's quite a few tips there but then once those tips are filled um yeah. they get covered and um you know so there won't be an odor problem but one of yeah. the issues also is the moravan airport i mean there's a pretty yes. busy airport there so um mm. you need there's a noise attenuation issue in that location yeah. um and I've found that people who live in Dingley and those areas, they don't even hear those planes. <laughs> no. If you're a visitor, you notice it straight away. Yeah. Well, that Mordialic Freeway is going in now. So, mm. you know, those people in Dingley are going to have that on their back doorstep now, aren't yes, they? Yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Frank, can you tell us about your website that you've created? Um, it sounds perfect for those who are seriously looking at development opportunities. Yes. Look, um, I, I developed this because. Um, I was involved, this is, goes way back before uh, matters. Or the internet was progressed to the extent that it is yes. at the moment, but I just felt that um, finding out planning information was quite a tortuous procedure and um, often uh, the information is there, but sort of extracting it can be quite difficult. So mm. I, I formed this, I, I got the domain name townplanning.com.au because I thought, well, um, if we can make something of this, um, it might be beneficial and uh, might work really well. Because um, yeah. So we, we then had a look at how we could do this and um, the state government then uh, in the mid-2000s, they actually established a website where you could actually get onto it uh, if you could find yeah. it and uh, get planning information um, from or for a particular site. And um, yeah. so what I, what I did with uh, my colleagues was we devised it. We came to an agreement with the uh, state government that we could use their information 
uh, with, mm. provided we didn't charge for it. And um, yeah. so uh, following that, we actually uh, developed some software so that with just a couple of um, information clicks, you could actually get information about your particular property um, mm -hmm. without having to go through uh, registrations or go through the, the um, fairly difficult to navigate state government website. And um, <clears throat> uh, over a period of time, we were able to develop that so that you can go onto the site and just fill in an address and it'll come back with um, an aerial photograph and also the, um, uh, the planning details of that particular property and also afford an opportunity to uh, acquire a certificate of title which yeah. uh, from my point of view, um, whenever I'm um, looking at a particular property, I always get a certificate of title because you, it might be in the right zone, might have all the right yeah. features, but there may be restrictions on the title which might sort of prevent you doing what you want to do. So you might as well know yeah. that straight away. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, we developed that and then I yeah. um, extended it to New South Wales. So. You can also put in an address in New South Wales and get the same information. And yeah. um, uh, Tasmania as well. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to extend it to South Australia and Queensland, um, but they haven't got the information available on their state government websites as yet. Oh, but as soon yeah. as they do, uh, we'll, we'll connect into that. So what yeah. I wanted to do was to develop a portal, if you like, like a Google-type portal so that people mm -hmm. can just put in an address in yeah. most of Australia and actually get information that they might need. I mean, um, yeah. not everyone just does developments in Victoria. They, they no. might want to do them elsewhere as well. So um, that was how we did it. And um, it's been pretty successful, actually. I mean, it's oh, getting good. busier and busier, but I just encourage people to use it. Yeah. Now. Do you find a lot of solicitors and conveyances use it? Or? Uh, not at this stage. Uh, uh, a lot of... A lot of people who, who get to know about it do use it, uh, yeah. but um, if, uh, we're, we're going to extend um, that to actually include um, solicitors and surveyors and architects and just anyone who's interested in property. I mean, like um, real estate agents. Um, I've mm. had discussions with them and they often um, move around particular areas and have a look at a property and, and they have the question, well, uh, I wonder what zone that's in and you know, yeah. what the dimensions are and um, yeah. uh, whether there's any controls on it. And also, uh, I wonder who owns it, you know. So you can, yeah. if you can go onto our site and actually find out who owns the property and all of the details, uh, well, that's, you know, like a one-stop shop type of thing. So that's what we're aiming to do, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, well, thank you, Frank, for your in-depth account on understanding council zones. You've been really insightful and clear in what we need to know. I hope our listeners uh, who are budding developers re really got a lot out of this episode. If you'd like to contact Frank, you can contact him through his website, www.townplanning.com.au or send him an email at frankp at townplanning.com.au. Thanks, Frank. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. It's okay. Also, the one other thing, uh, if they want to go to my um, consultancy website, it's town-planning.com.au as well. Okay, beautiful. But I'd like them to go to both. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's okay. townplanning.com.au, which is the portal, and town-planning.com.au, which is my website, my uh, consultancy website. 
Okay, beautiful. Next week, we are talking to the cable man, Anthony Elbaum, about how high-tech gadgetry adds value to your home, especially now since we've been through this COVID-19 pandemic and need more technology at home. Don't miss it. Real Estate Right is a real copyright production hosted by Sue Langada. We would like to thank Podbean for hosting our podcast, Audio Stock for sound effects, Premium Beat for our theme music and Zoom for our video link. If you love this podcast and want to help us, we'd be ever so thankful if you could please subscribe, rate and review us on your favourite podcast service. We welcome any of our listeners to email us if they have any questions they would like answered in a future episode. So please send an email to sue at realestateright.com.au. Thanks for listening to Real Estate Right.